Thank you. You may be seated. It is good to have Jeremy and Amy with us again this evening. We were able to spend a couple of hours with them this afternoon, and I think, by God's grace, we are kindred spirits, brother and sister, and we are so excited what God is doing in them and through them and what he will do in and through them in the country of Spain. So Jeremiah, Jeremy, you come. That's all right. I blow people's names all the time. Sometimes I blow my own name, so it's no big deal. Good to have you. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's a joy to be with you uh, again. Uh, We're grateful, like I said this morning, for the opportunity to give a report and uh, for the partnership in the gospel. Uh, We're we're very grateful for your support in prayer and also financially. Uh, I'll repeat, uh, by way of introduction, uh, Amy grew up in a Christian family in Spain. Her parents have been missionaries there for 39 years, so Spain is not new to her. Uh, By God's grace, I also grew up in a Christian household, but I was a rebellious young adult, rebellious teenager up to a young adult. God saved me in Spain while I was running away from him on a student exchange program in college. My thoughts were, well, I'm going to go to Spain. Now that I don't live with my parents anymore, I can just quit going to church and not come back. And by some special providence, I started living with an elderly Christian couple in Spain, kept going to church. So God saved me there, met my wife, learned Spanish. And uh, as I said this morning, it was a pretty good year for me. Um, Another thing I would like to say uh, by way of introduction, our prior mission focused on uh, theological education, training nationals. It was actually the same statement, but, well, similar statement, but reversed emphasis training nationals and assisting in church planting to strengthen multiply churches. Uh, The reason we're changing is not due to a change in philosophy, but due to a change presented to us by the nationals, by the Spaniards. That's a different need presented to us than the need that was presented to us by the Dominicans. And as both needs fit within the confines of the Great Commission, well, what we do is Great Commission work, so we're, we're good with that. And so I'll talk about the Dominican and then uh, about Spain. So I had the privilege of leading the revitalization of International Baptist Seminary. I say that in English for you guys, but it is, right? Seminario Bautista Internacional. Everything is in Spanish. This is a picture of the last graduation in which we took part in, August 29th, 2021. Why we went to the Dominican... If you've been a Christian for a while, you know this commission quite well, right? It's a foundational uh, verse for Christians. The Lord has sent us to go and make disciples of all nations. So we present the gospel to non-Christians and they become disciples, followers of Jesus through repentant faith. But the commission does continue, right? Uh, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and I'm with you always till the end of the age. So we focused more on the second part of the Great Commission, working with already Christians, and I call it kind of the Second Timothy 2.2 part of the Great Commission, where we entrust these things to faithful men so they can teach others also. So we were training pastors, men aspiring to be pastors, so that they can be the next generation in the church. We were training so that the church basically would see tomorrow by God's grace, so being used in that way in the Great Commission. The reason we went uh, to the Dominican in that capacity, other than it's the Great Commission, um, 
There was a group of 30 churches that had a, a need. Uh, they had a Bible institute. They were looking for someone to lead it, for someone to help them up the level of theological education, and we volunteered for that mission. So we worked uh, based on that need in the Great Commission. <clears throat> when we started, there was uh, one location, 20 students, roughly, uh, two institute-trained professors, and the requirements were rather informal. Uh, the classes took place uh, in the building you see there on Saturday afternoons, and that's the church where we attended uh, for five years in southeastern Dominican Republic in the city of La Romana. And so right, our job was to formalize that training, and by God's grace, uh, we saw that happen. We saw God's work uh, there in a very special way, and uh, we're grateful for uh, Dominicans being willing to work with us, foreigners who stumble in their culture a little bit here and there, but there was a great unity for the sake of the gospel. It was really a joy, not without difficulties, right? We are sinners, but we, we saw God's hand there in a special way. So as we left uh, last year, September 3rd or 4th, uh, there's at that point, and the, it still continues, uh, there were six campuses. The campuses are not like campuses like we think of. They're just classrooms in churches, but in six locations. Uh, 70 students, 18 professors, 15 of whom are Dominicans. And that's really important in missions uh, that what we build would continue when we leave. So God allowed for there to be a good Dominican faculty uh, interest uh, in that work. And so we're privileged to work with uh, sharp servants of the Lord there. Uh, The pastoral qualifications are what matter most, right? Uh, You want also a a depth of training, and God gave us uh, that kind of team, guys with master's degrees, most of us, uh, and then uh, six of us working on doctorates. So there was a good level of theological education uh, by God's grace. We're able to put together two programs, one for pastors, one for everybody else who desired to study, men or, or women, so for other ministries, and a board of directors, that's nine out of ten men on it are Dominican. So uh, that's how things left. And uh, we're grateful there was a good transition. The guy who was the dean, he and I uh, built the school together. He became the president as he knows the school really well. The faculty, the students, the professors, they know him. He's capable. Uh, God allowed for a good transition, though it was not planned. And so we're, we're grateful for that. It means a lot to me. <laughs> to leave and see uh, the work continue strong. So I thank the Lord uh, for, for that privilege. And uh, there's also good ownership indicators. What I mean by that is uh, churches said they would support the school financially, a few churches. And because of that, we think that the school will, will continue. So that, that's uh, national churches. Now, we left due to medical reasons. Uh, we left because of two particular reasons. When we were in the Dominican, uh, Amy got sick, and the, the doctor there malpracticed, and the doctor was the only MS specialist. MS is her health condition. At that point in time, we thought, well, all right, we don't trust her, so what we're going to do is go to the States a couple times a year to get medical treatment, and we're still committed to go, uh, but we found out shortly thereafter that Amy also had a mold allergy, and uh, you have to understand that Caribbean climate is not exactly a mold <laughs> Uh, I guess it's a mold-friendly climate, right? Humid, hot, very rainy, and as well, uh, the, the roofs are, are not waterproof. Uh, so 
every home in which we uh, were in in our city, uh, church people, other acquaintances, the two homes we rented had a lot of visible mold in them. So we understood at that point in time, that was November 10th of last year, that we had to leave the Dominican. And uh, we spent a few months praying, searching, and in January something of this year, we committed to go to Spain. And so we go to Spain because of a great need, because of the Great Commission, but we had to check off those two things, right? And there are many specialists for Amy's health condition. There's much better care. And also where we're going, it's pretty much a semi-arid, arid climate, very little rain, and better constructions. And so we've checked that off before we, we, say, we said, oh, we're going to go to Spain, right? We had to take that into consideration. And so now, before we talk about the ministry, I want to talk a little bit about uh, religious uh, statistics. <clears throat> so what happened in Spain is that in 1975, a, a dictator that had been the dictator for 40 years passed away, Franco. And uh, under his dictatorship, Catholicism was imposed as the state religion. And so uh, in 78, three years after he passed away, they rewrote the constitution of the country and you pretty much saw from there on a steep and steady decline away from Roman Catholicism into a post-Christian, secular, atheistic uh, worldview. Now you might be looking at the screen thinking, well, that's kind of a high number still, right? 63%, but maybe 50 or even 55% of that uh, percentage there is nominal Catholics. So it's like, yeah, I guess I'm a Catholic, you know, my grandmother goes to church every week, or I got baptized. Though you don't practice, it doesn't mean anything to you. And though in practice, you have another worldview. It's like, yeah, I'm Catholic. So that's uh, 50, 55% of the 63. So effectively, there's, you shift that 50 to 55% down to the non-religious category to have an 80, 85% plus, and an increasing number of non-religious people in Spain. 2% Muslim, 3% the other religions put together, and 1.3% that uh, say they're evangelicals. Now that statistic of evangelicals is a little uh, interesting. I get that from a census of a broader 2% that call themselves Protestants. So just hang in there with me for a second. So of that 2%, 1.3 say they're evangelicals. And that spans various categories. The 2% includes, well, those that don't go to church. It includes 1.3% who are Pentecostals. And it includes uh, Adventists, Anglicans, Methodists, non-denominationals, Brethrens, Baptists. And so the question is, well, what's a good idea of a, a real percentage of newborn Christians in Spain? I asked that question to a seasoned missionary, and he said, well, I think you could say 1%. And so when we say 1%, uh, that's, that's why, based on that 2018 census uh, that the Spanish government did. So there's a great need for the gospel in Spain. Why do we go? Well, it's the same reason, right? The Lord died for his church. Uh, all who believe will be saved. We're convinced of that. You're convinced of that. That's why you're here. And so we go uh, because of the, the commission mandate. We go because of a particular need presented to us. I talk with five uh, missionaries, also five Spanish pastors, and they pretty much told me all the same thing. They said, 
there's a dire need in the church. They assumed I would serve in church planting. <clears throat> What's interesting is, though uh, our missions work has been me presiding over a, a seminary, I've had a, a desire to be a pastor, and that has been fulfilled uh, training other pastors. So I didn't think that I'd be a pastor this soon, but I have desired, I've told uh, professors at, at our seminary in the Dominican, I see myself finishing my days, ministry, you know, days uh, as a pastor. And so here I am <laughs> looking at uh, becoming a pastor. So we're, we're excited about that. Uh, again, it's not our plan. It is God's providence. And so in God's providence, having put us in Spain, uh, also given us a desire to serve him there, we hope and think we can be uh, effective missionaries, missionaries there serving him in the Great Commission. When we think of our time in Spain, we can divide our time in Spain in two. Uh, there's the first year, then there's the long run. Uh, so the first year will be devoted to culture, just getting the lay of the land, uh, and do that as we serve, because we do speak the language. It's not uncommon, as you know, for missionaries to say, all right, we're going to give one or two years just to, to figure stuff out. <laughs> it's a lot to go abroad uh, in a different culture. Now you're thinking, well, Amy knows the culture. Yes, there is such a thing, however, uh, as a reverse culture shock in cultural studies. It's been 14 years since she's lived there. And so you could define culture as, let's say, you have a thousand unwritten rules in your mind. You come to church, and it starts at a certain time, given what it says it does. You greet one another in a certain way. You eat certain kinds of foods you eat at a certain time. You go to the bathroom in a certain way. <laughs> you drink your water a certain way. Uh, driving is a certain way. Your government papers happen a certain way. And when we got to the Dominican, it took us 10 visits and two months to open a bank account. So I'm just giving one little example. So when you, you go somewhere else, you break 500 of those rules, it's really frustrating. And so ideally what happens is you rack well when you're frustrated and you reshape those unwritten rules, those habits that you have. You're like, well, this is how it works. And then it's like, well, no, it's not how it works. It's another way. And you reshape those uh, rules in your mind so as to be an effective minister of the gospel, but also it makes your life a lot easier. You have to understand that it is possible to be 20 years in a location and to not fit in. So you have to be very aware of culture and learn that culture well. So it'll take Amy a year. It'll take me four or five years to really break into the culture. Though I was there for a year, it takes a good four or five years so culture is important. We'll focus energies on that. We will be serving, like I said. I'll be teaching, preaching, because we know the language. And we also will be trying to get the lay of the land. It's one thing to do a survey trip, but you're, you can't pick up on what's really going on, the undercurrents, until you've been there for a while. And so we want to, to get a good look, look under the hood, so to speak. Uh, we have been invited uh, to four different ministries, I think it's very likely that we'll stay where we're at. That's why we're going there. It's a good place where there's a legitimate need. I think it's a good fit. Uh, but it's possible uh, there's an agreement between myself and the guy who we're going to help that we'll give this a year and we'll see if it'd be better that we would go in another place where we've been invited with legitimate needs, church without a pastor, a young church plant, uh, or stay there. So where we're going, 
There's one pastor, he works a day job, and if you know anything about the pastorate, it'd be kind of helpful to at least be full-time. So there's, there's a lot more work to be done, and so we, we want to go help and contribute in that church. Um, <clears throat> so after year one, we'll be committing to a local church. We hope that in God's providence, uh, we'd be as part of a team, though most of the churches I know in Spain are small and there's just one pastor. We hope to be part of a team for two particular reasons. I hope to keep teaching and theological education, and I think it'd be hard for me to do that being the only pastor. I know my capacities. And then, as well, when missionaries come back uh, to report to churches every five years or so, I, I can't fathom doing that, leaving the church by itself. So we'll see what God allows, but that is our plan And uh, now a little more about the first year. So who we're going to help uh, are the Bells, David Bell and Maribel Bell. Uh, He's American. She's a Spaniard. And uh, he has a master's from the States, did a doctorate uh, in Spain, and he teaches at the university to provide for their needs. Uh, Now the big thumbtack uh, is where I went to university. The small one is where we're going. And Amy grew up... uh, 30 minutes southwest of the big thumbtack. And uh, where the small thumbtack is, is the city of Petrer. And Petrer has an other adjoining city called Elda. So together, you can tell the city is apart if it weren't for the names, right? They're stuck right together. And together, there's about 100,000 inhabitants. This is the one sound gospel preaching church for 100,000 inhabitants. There are uh, three Pentecostal churches and one of a social gospel-ish church there as well. There are several surrounding communities as well, beyond those 100,000 inhabitants. Uh, like 10 of them or so have one to 2,000 inhabitants. Two have 10,000, and one of them stand out, stands out with 20,000 inhabitants with no uh, evangelical work in it whatsoever, uh, called Monforte del Cid. And so that church is a church, a lighthouse for those uh, communities as well. Uh, so I've talked about theological education. I haven't been invited in a formal capacity yet. I've reached out to seminaries like, well, let's wait till you get here and wait till we know you. But I have been invited locally. Uh, Spain does theological education, whether in a formal or informal way. It's on weekends. It's a one class Friday to Saturday kind of thing. And so locally, usually what they have in the region and the province of Alicante is six churches gather together and you give a class on Saturday and that's what they do uh, there. And so I have been invited in that capacity by the pastor of the church in which I got saved. And so uh, that's what we aspire to do uh, in Spain by God's grace. Uh, We do see this as a career move. I really hope the Lord will come back before then. Uh, If not, uh, we plan, if the Lord wills, uh, for this to be a a career move. Uh, Right now, we we hope to be in Spain by the end of November. We applied for visas Friday. There's a lot I could say there. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, It means three months if everything's go well, I guess is a good summary statement. We're at like 93, 94% of our support. And so we hope God will provide the rest as we are in churches between now and November. And so we have needs for outfit and passage. Um, As you've noticed, I'm sure there's a table in the back with a prayer sign-up sheet and prayer cards. Uh, Prayer cards are not for us to keep. (laughs) Uh, So we do appreciate prayers. 
Uh, we know that going out there and doing the work is, I say, it's just half the work. God works through prayer, and we do appreciate uh, prayers. If you don't receive our prayer updates and would like to, you can just write your name and email in the back or uh, shoot me an email at this email you see on the screen. And uh, I think I have maybe a couple minutes for questions. And uh, so I'm going to open it for questions. If anyone has a question, I'd be happy to answer that. Well, I don't see any hands, so if, if you think I'm something afterwards, I'd be happy to answer your questions after, and now we'll turn our attention to the Word of God. So let's pray before we do that. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful to be gathered uh, together this evening and to be a part of your great commission. Lord, you have saved us by grace, and you use, uh, you use us despite who we are. Uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for so much grace you have shown us. We pray that you would help us uh, in light of it uh, to live for you, Lord. Help us, um, though frail we are, to, uh, to not, not live for ourselves but for you uh, as we battle daily in our sanctification until we breathe our last, Lord. Uh, we pray asking for your help, for your, your glory, in Christ's name. Amen. Death is a, a difficult thing. As we've, as we, as we've heard, um, however, for Christians, the sting has been removed, right? And that is an awesome thing. The day we breathe our last, we are done with a sin-cursed world, with a, a sin-cursed body, However, on this side of uh, humanity, or of eternity, pardon me, humanity, I don't know how that got in my mind. On this side of eternity, we still experience uh, sin and death. Our bodies are slowly falling apart. Sometimes it's faster for, for some. And we see loved ones uh, pass away. And there's pain there. There's physical death that happens. And this death is that has been caused by spiritual death, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and we reaped uh, what has happened uh, since then, the curse of sin. And so we were born sinners, and our flesh desires to live for itself, for the boastful pride of life, the desires uh, of the eyes uh, of the flesh. And that's why we need the reminder uh, of the passage this evening that we'll be looking at, uh, the reminder of keep dying to self. Once we come to Christ, we have the new nature, and there's a battle that starts. The battle, why, right? Because we have uh, the old man. We have the presence of sin that's still there. And so we, we fight a battle, though certainly... The penalty of sin has been paid. We can bank that salvation will be completed. And it is true, uh, though as well, the power of sin has been broken. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us there's no temptation that will be too strong, right? We can overcome it. So we have this battle. When we think of keep dying to self, our flesh is like, man, I want nothing to do with that. What do you mean die to self? I want to enjoy this. 
in the world? Well, obviously they don't believe it. The old man is the only man they have. They live for self. So we need this reminder of keep dying to self. We find this uh, idea in the book of John. John is, uh, has two main sections. The first portion of the book happens over three years. And in that portion of the book, what we have is the assertion of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And we have that uh, affirmation of who Jesus is through I am statements, right? Before Abraham was, I am. And also through signs or miracles. There are seven main ones, but then there are many others as well. And the culminating one is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, right? So that's the first portion of the book. And the second portion of the book happens over only two weeks. What we find in this second portion of the book is the preparation and also the events. Jesus prepares his disciples for his death, resurrection, and ascension. That's chapters 13 to 21. And so there's a transition chapter in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, six days before the Passover. And from that point on till the end of the book, there's only two weeks. There's another transition statement in John 12, 23 that says, the hour has come. Well, what we have to understand here is that before then in the book, the hour had not come. John 2.41, the hour has not come yet. John 7.30, the hour has not come yet. John 8.20 as well. And so that's our broader context of the book. And then in chapter 12, where we're at this evening, we find crowds that are there. Crowds that might be following Jesus because they hope that they're going to heal them or give them something good. Others that are there trying to kill him, right? The religious leaders, But there are some who have believed in in Jesus Christ. We find that in verse 42. And also, uh, there are God-fearers, Greeks, who are God-fearers because uh, of them. The text says in verse 20, they went up to worship at the festival. So we understand that those Greeks were God-fearers going to a Jewish festival. So some have believed. And these Greeks, who are God-fearers, have a question for Jesus But the passage does not tell us what the question is. It only tells us Jesus' answer. So what Jesus wants us to know is his answer to them, to those who fear him. So this is uh, an answer that explains really what Christian life ought to look like. So if you would read with me in John 12, verses 23 to 26. That's our passage this evening. It reads the following way. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, Keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So in these four brief verses, we find four ideas. And the first one we've already talked about a little bit, it's that the hour to be glorified has come. Now, when we talk about this hour to be glorified, what are we talking about? Certainly, we would think, well, it talks about the resurrection and ascension, the ascension of when Christ goes at the right hand of the Father. He is glorified. 
Uh, But I think, uh, I'm convinced actually by the text that it also includes his death. Even though one might think, well, wasn't that an extremely shameful thing in Roman culture? It was. And even though, yes, Jesus Christ did leave a glorious position in heaven to take a lowly one on earth. Glory is fully displayed in the shame uh, as we can understand by reading verse 24, which further elaborates the glorification of verse 23. Verse 24, right? says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this is talking, it's a parable to illustrate Jesus' death and how his death, or without his death, there would be no fruit, there would be no salvation. But with his death, there is much fruit. And because his death saves us, those of us who believe in him, there is much glory in it. There is much glory in the cross of Christ. And so, this... uh, this is the glorification that the passage talks about. And the second idea of the text is that right, a seed must die to produce fruit. A seed must die to produce fruit. And what we find as we look at verse 24 a little more is that first of all, there's an emphatic statement. When there's repetition there, it's because there's emphasis. And it makes me think of one of my children <laughs> who when uh, she really wants something, our older daughter, she will ask me multiple times. There's an emphasis there. Make sure that daddy really knows that I want this for this to happen. So it's a poor illustration, but what I'm trying to communicate here is that the passage is really trying to highlight something for us. Christ wants us to understand there's much emphasis here. It is, there's an emphasis about the fact that his death produces much fruit, produces much salvation. And beyond the part of emphasis, truly, truly gives us a, a certain statement as well. And this is not like your buddy at work is like, for real, man, I'm telling you, this time, like, it's true. But then last week he lied to you. Like, well, I don't believe what you say. This is a certain statement from the one that does not lie. There is no falsehood in Christ. And so the statement is meant for us to pay attention to it and for us to understand it. it is certain. I can certainly bank on the promises of Jesus Christ, on the fact that his death produces salvation. And if we look at the passage a little deeper than that, we can also see a profound devotion of love to the Father's plan. Jesus obeyed completely, right? Until the die, the death on the, his death on the cross. I do have an excuse that I speak more than one language, and I say, well, at least I have an excuse when I stumble here and there. Um, so there's a profound loyalty, self-sacrificial loyalty and love that we find in this passage all right, so we, we sum up a certain true statement and a profound love demonstrated for us in this verse. Now, Jesus takes this truth and applies it to us. The passage has been talking about him so far, and he takes this truth about his death, his obedient 
life up till the point of death on the cross and then applies it to us. Now, it is applied to us in a, in a slightly different way because our life is not meant to be one that results in dying for others to live, right? Hebrews 7.27 talks about the fact that he died once for all. It's not necessary. There's a slight alteration in the application in that we are meant to just refuse our old man and instead live for Christ. That's what the passage uh, says to us. That's how the passage is applied to us. And we find that in verses 25 and 26. The third truth in the passage is hate your life to keep it. We find that in verse 25. It says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And there's a parallel passage uh, in another gospel that explains this idea. If we read Mark 8.35, it's almost the same uh, wording as John 12.25. It reads the following way, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. And when we read the prior verse, it explains what this means. And so if you'd listen to Mark 8.34 with me, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. So on and so forth. So what the passage here is talking about is us us denying ourselves or us keeping dying to self. Language that we find in scripture, right? 1 Peter 2.24, another parallel passage reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. And so that's the idea that we get here. Another well-known passage, Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And what, what does that look like to keep dying to self? Well, one uh, well-known preacher says it, it can look like this. It's just that things down here don't matter much. It's one way to think about it. If men speak well of you, it doesn't matter much. If they hate you, it doesn't matter much. If you have lots of things, it doesn't matter much. If you have little, it doesn't matter much. If you're persecuted or lied about, you're like, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> Well, in light of eternity and in light of following Christ, it doesn't matter much. Our, our life is not down here. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you're famous or unheard of, it doesn't matter much. If you have died with Christ, these things just don't matter much. And then we have the last idea of the passage in verse 26. The idea I get from that verse is follow Jesus and you'll be with him. Follow Jesus and you'll be with him. And so as we read verse 26, it reads the following way. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So notice the first part of the verse. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So what Jesus is saying is he can't just say, I serve you. You have to actually follow him. Uh, in this verse, we have to follow Jesus. And as Jesus' crucifixion is the path to his glorification, 
So the believer's death is the path to vindication. The Father will honor us. So I get this main idea of keep dying to self due to the fact that that is our call to keep, right, bearing our cross, to keep saying no to the flesh, to die to self. And that, even if our flesh does not want it, that's why we wage intense wars, spiritual warfare. I mean, you turn your television on and it's all about you. Enjoy this. Binge on this, that, or whatever else you feel like. We literally live in a sin-infected world and it's all about get as much stuff as you can here and now because this is what it's about. And our flesh wants that. Yet that's not what we've been called to. We've been called to keep dying to self as unpleasant as it sounds. What do you mean, die to self? I don't want to die. <laughs> I want to do what I want. Keep dying to self. It's what Christian life ought to look like. And our Lord graciously not only tells us to do that, but gives us a precious motivation based on which we ought to do that. It says in verse 25, he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We will have eternal life. Those of us who follow Christ will be honored by the Father. And so we ought to keep dying to self as we look at these promises, as we look back at Calvary at the certainty of the promise that Jesus made based on the fact that he did come, he did die and resurrect, and that does produce salvation. That ought to motivate us to wage spiritual warfare, not to get comfortable down here. And then on the other hand, there is a stiff warning, however, right? Love your life, you will lose it. If you live for yourself, you say, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but in fact, you're walking the other way, the Father will certainly not honor you. And so may the Lord help us keep dying to self. And how, how could that look like in, in a day? Days are pretty much the same. I mean, if, you're, if you work, Monday morning, a little groggy, the alarm wakes you up. There's different stages of life, so you can apply it to your stage of life, but your kids are acting up and you, you just got to get to work and you're impatient with them and then you're thinking, driving to work about how you can maybe get your promotion and you come back and you got an appointment or some activity and by the time you know it, you're, your head's on the pillow and you're starting all over again. You're hoping for the weekend. If you're retired, it's the weekend every day apparently but uh, I'm not there yet. There's another way to look at this day, right? Uh, you have the same thing going on, but you, you try, and we heard this morning about raising our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not provoking them. And so instead of reacting impatiently out of anger, I think about how I can teach and love my kids and the Lord as I drive to work I ask the Lord to help me to think about how I can be a light for him. For opportunities, I pray, to share the gospel with unbelieving friends. And I ask for this renewed focus 
as I go to work every week. And as I get back home from work, instead of thinking about me, myself, and I, you know, I think about uh, how can I honor God as a husband selflessly loving, as a wife submitting, or as a child obeying my parents for the roles he's given me. And at church, oh, we submit to leaders in the home or at church. If I don't get my way, it doesn't matter. It's not about you. It's not about me. Right? Wait a minute. Are we sure? <laughs> Our flesh wants, to, wants it to be about us. And it certainly is difficult as we are frail and sinful, right? But it's not about us. And may the Lord help us to think of, you know, love and submit and Philippians one twenty seven to two four, which I, I've had to meditate on uh, as I was thinking of situations and Lord help me put your church first, you know, the unity of the church. So for us as missionaries, well it's it's the same as right, you guys here, we just had a different cultural dynamic and we asked the Lord for help to live as pilgrims here to fight to not live for this world, to try to beat those desires out of us. And we do so because of what Christ has done for us on Calvary, right? Because of the certainty of this statement, because of his profound love for us, because we can bank on the promises that Christ is coming back again. So we ask the Lord to help us keep dying to self. Uh, So may the Lord bless his word. Help us to keep dying to self this week.